uh, I think I would just override, override what was happening in my body and emotional system. Um, and so mindfulness definitely helped me build that relationship, respect my body, really like appreciate it. Like there's so much wisdom in the body. Um, and it's like, I, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, someone has probably already on your show given this example, right. Of when an animal has something kind of traumatic and they shake it off, right. Their bodies can, can release it. Right. But uh, whether it's cultural or habituated or who knows, you know, like sometimes stuff happens and we just get stuck in our bodies. Right. We, we don't do it. And so I've, so appreciated turning to my body, listening to what my body wants to do, especially at times when I felt into trauma and been like, oh, my body wants to shake. You know, my body wants to stretch. My body wants to do all these things and wants to release this stuff. But it, absolutely for me, mindfulness was the way that I built that relationship. Hi, I'm Sandy Fowler, and you're listening to Mighty Parenting, a podcast where we explore parenting in a way that helps us and our kids find more happiness and fosters emotional wellness, even while solving problems with our teens and young adults. We learn through advice and stories from experts and other parents, and I'm so glad you've joined us. So welcome to Mighty Parenting, where we have real, raw, and relevant talk about raising teens and parenting young adults in today's world. This episode is sponsored by Inward Bound Mindfulness Education, IBME. We hear people talking about mindfulness, but why would we want our kids to learn how to pay attention to the present moment with kindness and curiosity? Well, research has shown the benefits of mindfulness to include increased self-awareness, improved focus and impulse control, decreased stress and anxiety, skillful response to difficult emotions, and increased empathy. And research on the impact of IBME retreats shows teens experience increased self-compassion and life satisfaction, as well as decreased rumination and reactivity following their retreat. Basically, it's what we strive for at Mighty Parenting, emotional wellness and greater contentment for our kids. IBME has many programs and opportunities for our teens and young adults, and even parents, to learn and practice mindfulness. Just visit ibme.com slash mightyparenting to see what's available. And while you're there, be sure to enter your email to stay updated on new offerings. Today's episode is sponsored by Inward Bound Mindfulness Education, IBME. So our guest today is Sara Shapuri. Sara is an Iranian-American meditation teacher, artist, parent, and lawyer whose path and offerings are influenced by Theravada and Mahayana Buddhism, Jungian and depth psychology, indigenous focusing-oriented therapy, relational mindfulness, esoteric mystical traditions, and stand-up comedy. She brings in everything to come up with her viewpoint. And she joins us today to discuss intergenerational trauma. Sarah, welcome to Mighty Parenting. Thank you, Sandy. Great to be here. I am so glad to have you back on episode 177. We had such a great conversation about shame. And in that conversation is where this idea of intergenerational trauma popped up. And I love that we're going back and going deeper in that conversation by adding on one about um, intergenerational trauma. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions in our world about what trauma itself is much less intergenerational trauma, which many people haven't even heard of. So let's maybe go to the beginning and just talk a little about what trauma actually 
is, and then we can get into a little of what intergenerational trauma looks like and what's happening there. That's a great question. For me, and I'm, I'll say this, I'm a, I'm a student of trauma and trauma healing, but no, no expert. And the way I understand trauma is that it's related to some experience, some difficulty, some challenge that was overwhelming and difficult for us to process and move through. And so at times it can either kind of keep us stuck in certain patterns or it can pop up in unexpected ways that feels overwhelming or out of control. And it can really range in terms of the cause. Like we can't really judge, oh, that's not worthy of trauma or that is. So, you know, we, we can think of really dramatic incidents like car accidents that some might say are obviously traumatic. But there can be other things, more everyday things that for some person, because of whatever conditioning, however it lands, is overwhelming and they can't process and move through. So that's that's my understanding. That's how I relate to the word trauma. And I think that's really interesting because it also brings us to the idea of, well, I guess just starting with, let's just start with this, is you've pointed out that yes, big things, car accidents, war, um, violence against you in any form or someone you love, right? These things can be traumatic. And even those are, are not something that everyone gets stuck in. Some yeah. people process it and move through and some people kind of get stuck and some people have what others would look at and say is a small thing. And I think oftentimes it can be particularly with the small things, things that are repetitive where it's maybe it's um, a slight or an expectation or the way someone responds or reacts to you. And when it happens over and over and over, and for you, that's landing in a way that's hurtful and harmful, that that over time becomes traumatic. Absolutely. No. And I think about, you know, when we talk about racial microaggressions, Mm-hmm. right? That repeated kind of cutting over and over and over again, that doesn't get processed, doesn't get healed, doesn't get acknowledged, doesn't get the care that it needs and is a form of trauma. So that's absolutely right. doesn't have to just be one huge incident. It can be a series of things that builds up to that. And that's interesting when you talk about that, because I think my personal experience, I've seen it more in the female community, just because I have I have spent more time there. Yeah. You'll have two women or a small group of women. And one of them will, will talk about how this person or this group or this organization may be at work. I've, I had that happen when I was in a corporate workplace where one woman is deeply offended and, and apparently stressed and really struggling to deal with the environment. And, you know, one or two other women are not. And I think that that can be an indication of trauma when, when we're, when we're in an environment where we're struggling and perhaps other people aren't struggling in the same environment, that could be an indication that works. We've experienced trauma around this. Yeah. 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 I absolutely think that's true. It signals something's up. Absolutely. And that's the key word. It's just a signal. Yeah. I was looking at some of the notes you wrote to me before the interview. And one of the things that I loved is now you were talking specifically about intergenerational trauma, which we'll get to in a minute, but it's a type of trauma. 
And you, you take this, this attitude in all of your work of just, it's, this is just a signal. This isn't that this is something that we need to be upset about or angry about, or um, the feeling that, you know, life is unfair, that this happened to me, like, don't need to go down that rabbit hole necessarily. And it's not something being traumatized doesn't mean that we're broken, that we're bad, that there's anything wrong with us, that this is just a signal. And so what, Sarah, would you say this is a signal too. Like if, you know, if we see this in ourselves or in our kids, we go, Oh, wait a minute. You know, they're, they're having a hard time in this situation, or I'm having a hard time in the situation. Nobody else is, or wow. I noticed that whenever this happens, I, or they have, have difficulty dealing with that. So this signal we identify, we become aware of it. Okay. What does that mean then? I, I, I love this question. And I want to say there was something earlier that in this question that you said that made me think about our shame conversation. And just to name, right, that as much as it's something we don't have to feel bad about, if we do feel bad, we don't need to shame ourselves, right? Like if we are having grief, if we are having anger, if it feels overwhelming, if we are, why me? That's not that's not something we need to beat ourselves up for because this is hard. Sure, I'm gonna be presenting a potentially um, yeah, non-pathologizing view of trauma, but that doesn't mean that it's not difficult, right? So first it just yeah. like to be kind to ourselves, wherever we are relating to our trauma on the spectrum. Um, and then to me, when it arises, one of the things it signals is just like, we need care and this needs attention. The form of care and the form of attention can vary. Um, maybe we need direct interventions, therapeutic interventions, but maybe we just need someone to sit beside us and calm us down. But I think the first thing it makes me think of is, you know, our nervous system, right? If, if something's going on, if we're activated, then we need to attend to our nervous system because we can't get anywhere when we're activated, right? So that's the first thing is how can we find some stability and grounding and ease and a breath to then be able to look at the situation and think what's the next step? So for me, the initial thing is like what it means is someone's in distress and they need care and kindness and compassion and some resources to help them get to a place where they can be with their experience more easily and gently and actually have some curiosity and capacity to be with it. Because really what that signals is right now, they don't have capacity. And so we don't need to shame people for that. But we can be like, how can we help someone get the capacity that they innately have, but at this moment is inaccessible? Well, and you do that through mindfulness at IBME, right? That that's the key tool that you're teaching. And that's the reason, right? Is yeah. so we can so we can have that capacity so that we can tend and care for ourselves, we can calm our nervous system. So tell me just a little bit about how mindfulness and mindfulness meditation, how they play into this idea of, of calming. So on our retreats, there's a few, I'll say there's two kind of, uh, sometimes they, it's a maybe overused cliche of, they talk about the wings of mindfulness, it's wisdom and compassion, right? And so that compassion piece it's really about like kindness to ourselves, right? And so 
like I'm saying, like we don't need to shame ourselves for having difficulty. And so I think one of the things that can help us calm down is cultivating this attitude of friendliness towards ourselves and our experience. And when I say our experience, I also mean our internal experience, our emotions, right? Because a lot of us have a habit um, of being really mean to ourselves when we're having a hard time, right? And so that's one of the things we cultivate. So when we talk about, okay, are you going to bring your attention to say your breath? And when your mind wanders off, you're going to practice not being mean to yourself about it, but gently coming back. Okay. I'm going right? to interrupt you for just a minute because <laughs> the first time I tried meditation, probably 20 to 25 years ago, I didn't really know anything about it. It was, it was um, encouraged in a book that I was reading, but the book wasn't about meditation. You know, the book was more of a I guess more of a spiritual type of book and the tool that uh, was mentioned was meditation. So I tried this and in my mind, I thought, okay, if I meditate, there shouldn't be any thoughts. So I would always end up more frustrated and upset and yes, being mean to myself afterward. Like it's, you can't calm down. You can't stop your mind. And that's actually not the point. Yeah. It's not the point. And I think that's why for some people, um, you know, who are maybe having, have a traumatic history or something to deal with. It's like meditation cannot help, but that's because it's, they're getting the wrong instructions, right? They're getting the the wrong messaging around it. Um, and so one of the things I really appreciate about IBME is there's a real movement around trauma-informed mindfulness. And there's a lot of, a lot of teachers and a lot of authors, but like we're, uh, you know, there's an IBME teacher training that's happening right now. And there's um, trauma-sensitive mindfulness by David Tree Levin, and we've had him come talk to our students um, and just using different resources to make mindfulness more trauma-informed because um, depending on how it's offered, it might not be trauma-sensitive. So back to your question in terms of what we offer. So first is that kind of grounding in, in kindness. And then there are these tools of how to resource, how to calm ourselves, how to orient ourselves. So one of the trauma-sensitive mindfulness practices is you don't just go in and close your eyes and go in because that can be overwhelming that you can visually orient to your space. So right now, if someone could look around their space and notice the light, notice the shapes, notice the color, textures, notice what's beautiful, and remind themselves that they can resource themselves with that. And then that's a great way to practice too. If it's too scary or overwhelming to say, close your eyes or go in your body, you can practice mindfulness in this way that feels more safe and accessible. So that's that's one way. So offering uh, trauma-informed mindfulness and then all sorts of resources as we help people get into meditation of how to feel some ease and calm. Also naming that not all these tools work for everybody. So for some people, right, you can intentionally take a calming breath, which might be in the form of a longer, fuller inhale and a deep exhale. But for some people, that's activating. And so one of the things on retreats that we like to offer is different tools, knowing that there's not a one-size-fits-all for our young people that are on retreats. So what are some doorways that we can offer them to help them calm and relax and get enough stability so that they can feel comfortable turning towards their experience, right? Because that's the same thing with trauma. It's like, you need to calm, you need to be calm and stable and curious and resourced enough to turn towards whether it's the difficulty, whether it's the emotion, whether it's the thoughts, you need that stability first. And so that's the idea here is 
right? To have, as you said, the stability and the resources to then be able to sit with this. Yeah. So that we aren't running from it, pushing it down, trying to get away from it because it's inside of us. You can't get away from it. And it's stressful, you know, I mean, for me, I mean, I run from all kinds of things still. And (laughs) once I stop running, I realize how stressful it is. It's like, that's hard. It's really hard. And I, and I don't pathologize it for myself because it's like, yeah, of course it's hard to face difficult things. Of course it is, you know, and we still have to do the work of showing up for ourselves. One of the other things I've noticed in this conversation too, though, is you were talking about, you know, the retreat and the teens being there. And I think it would be, I just think it would be so, I think like emotionally nourishing and uplifting to just be in a place where there's this acceptance. Cause you just keep talking about self-compassion and different, everybody's different. And we help you find tools that work for you. It's like, there's this total acceptance of who each individual human being is and helping them find their, their tools and their resources. And I think that alone would be amazing for many of our kids. (laughs) I think it'd be amazing for everybody. I mean, that's the, you know, I mean the name, right. I be me. I mean, it's really, that's what it is. It's like teaching, uh, you know, offering tools and resources and in a community where people can really connect to themselves and love who they are and be open to who they are. And by doing that, be open to who everybody else is too. Right. Because I feel like the only reason why we give, I'll speak for myself. The only reason why I give people a hard time is ultimately because I'm not okay with myself. Right. You know, the things that I mess, I get frustrated and like, why are they like this? It's like all hangups I have within myself. Cause there's a bunch of stuff I don't get annoyed with people for. And it's because I'm, I don't have those issues internally. I'm not conflicted. So I think that that whole aspect of, of self-love and self-acceptance, it radiates out. Yeah. So how does this play into intergenerational trauma? So let's, let's talk about what is intergenerational trauma. Yeah. So again, this understanding that I have from it comes from a a training I did, Indigenous Focusing Oriented Therapy that you mentioned, um, which uh, came to me through uh, the kind of creator of it is this woman, Shirley Turcott. Um, She's a Métis woman, so an Indigenous woman in Canada. And then there's another teacher, Dara Williams, who um, is also a meditation teacher, who was my teacher. And so in some ways to me, what I got from that training, and this might be a little controversial, was like uh, one way of looking at intergenerational trauma is that it's uh, passed down wisdom, right? Like, um, and that's not to sugarcoat it and say, let's keep it, or keep it around. Like if it's time to drop things, we have to drop them. But that um, we have inherited these memories of difficulties and strife, um, so that we can survive them in the future. And there might be times when we don't need to survive that anymore and we're still holding that way of being and it's not serving us, but sometimes it's actually still serving us, right? And so that's that's one way that I view it, but it's just this passed down. And some of it can be like, well, the trauma is still happening. So both it's intergenerational and it's present, right? But the experiences that our ancestors have had that have been either through, you could say, I'm not an expert on DNA and epigenetics, but either like passed down through blood or passed down through how we have been raised and conditioned. 
that we keep living, even if we didn't directly experience it ourselves. Yeah. And I don't know a lot about it either. I've uh, been to a couple of events where it was discussed, but I just want to point out that when we're talking about intergenerational trauma, we are talking about things passed down through our DNA. And I, and I guess that's one thing to mention too. You know, we talk about, well, I talk about stress being a stress relief coach, helping people find calm. It impacts our entire body because it impacts our DNA. And it just never occurs to us that this is actually handed down through our genes. So there is that component. And as you said, there's also the like nature versus nurture that that's the nature component of it, but there's also a nurture. We have families who have raised us and there are actions we take and underlying assumptions and conversations we have, and they all shape us. So I guess what I'm wondering is, okay, so I'm here. I'm in a family and I've got kids, teenagers, whatever. What does this mean for us? What does intergenerational trauma mean? Like, okay, great. It exists, but now what? Yeah, that's a great question. For me, when I think of it with, I have um, just one child, an eight-year-old. And when I think of it with him, for me, it's like, what is, what is the stuff that I need to drop that I don't need to pass on? right? Like what is the like old stuff that I'm carrying, the fears, the ways of relating that aren't actually relevant to the, my present situation, my current, like this incarnation, this person here, not what my ancestors had to go through, but this person here. And then maybe what is the uh, nuggets of wisdom to keep, right? And, and pass down. Um, and it's imperfect work, right? There will be things that my son will have to solve and digest and let go of that I pass down that he no longer needs, right? This is like forever the work of each generation of what to, what to let go of. Um, but so that's what that means for me is like, where am I stuck? And where, yeah, where is it time to, to transition through? And can I do that so that I'm not passing on something unnecessary for him? or those around me, right? Because it's like, you know, there's vicarious trauma, you know, we can just keep, we can keep the, keep it spreading and ping-ponging all over the place. Yeah, and I think as simple as recognizing that, going back to the beginning of the conversation, if, if people are triggered by things, simply being aware that that can be due to a trauma, that this isn't, well, it's not being overly sensitive. Mm that it's, yeah. you know, the languaging out there, don't be a baby, don't be a wuss. Oh, yeah. It's not a big deal. Let it go. If we can move ourselves past that type of languaging to that place of curiosity and calm, wow, it seems like that might've been really hard for you or that maybe triggered you. Or if it's us sharing that with our kids, yeah. I've noticed that this doesn't really seem to bother anybody else. This is really difficult for me. This is yeah. really triggering for me. And then from that place of curiosity and self-compassion or compassion for others, exploring a little and maybe finding something that is either a nugget of wisdom or something to let go of. And I, I'm kind of thinking of like, while we're doing all of this is sort of like watering ourselves with mindfulness, meditation, learning more about self-compassion, building our toolbox, our skills around really good, deep self-care. 
Yeah. And I'll say another thing, because that's all, I think, all right on. And another thing for me of where mindfulness comes in is, you know, I'll say this, right? When trauma is sort of alive and really intense, the body might not feel a safe place to be in because it kind of can live in the body. And when one is has the resource and capacity, it's like the body is a profound way to heal and release trauma. Um, and I haven't, I haven't studied with this, but I've heard about somatic experiencing and gener- there's like other kinds of trainings around, yeah, how through the body you can help release and process. And um, in the indigenous focusing oriented therapy training that I was a part of, one of the ways is, you know, they call it the felt sense, but it's really mindfulness. It's mindfulness of what they call like the feeling corridor of our face and our trunk and our arms and really feeling the uh, how that trauma lives in the body and being in relationship to it. Kind of like, well, what do you need? What is this, what is this thing that's in my body? What does it need me to know? Is it time to put it down? But so to me, mindfulness is like the, the springboard into that relationship with the body and having a relationship with your trauma that isn't just something like you're saying you're running from, but something that you're learning from. And so listening to you talk right there, Sarah, was so interesting because my brain went back to other episodes. The first thing that popped in my mind is the episodes that we have done on um, body image and eating disorders and the conversations there go back to, well, listen to your body and what does it want to eat? And I'm sure it's blatantly obvious when you listen to those interviews that that was such a foreign concept for me growing up in an American culture where you eat what's put in front of you at the times of day that you're allowed to eat, right? What do you mean? What does my body want to eat? Well, I want candy. I want, I'm a sugar junkie. (laughs) Like that's what, no, that's, that's above the neck, right? That's, that's the head going, oh, that sounds good. That's not my body. And that's what I want. And, And there are other shows too, where it's, we've had experts tell us in different areas, go inside, see what you're thinking. And what you just said to me is that mindfulness is your path to doing that. Mindfulness is definitely my path to doing that. So really quickly, I'm, if I can get a little bit nosy. So did you have um, like a good sense of self and intuition relationship with your body first, or did you discover mindfulness, which helped you gain that? Okay. Well, people can't see me laughing. I'm laughing because I did not have a good relationship with my body. I did not have a sense of being connected to my intuition um, or what was alive for me. It was very disconnected, very head oriented, very judgmental of, uh, I think I would just override, override what was happening in my body and emotional system. Um, And so mindfulness definitely helped me build that relationship, respect my body, really like appreciate like there's so much wisdom in the body um and it's like I, I mean i'm sure i'm sure you know someone has probably already on your show given this example right of when an animal has something kind of traumatic and they shake it off right their bodies can can release it right but uh whether it's cultural or habituated or who knows you know like sometimes stuff happens and we just get stuck in our bodies right we, we don't do it and so i've so appreciated turning to my body, listening to what my body wants to do, especially at times when I felt into trauma and been like, oh, my body wants to shake. You know, my body wants to stretch. My body wants to do all these things and wants to release this stuff. But it absolutely for me, mindfulness was the way that I built that relationship. 
Yeah. And, and then letting the mindfulness help you be aware of that. So, all right, real quick story. Jude Bijou is actually the expert we had on who talks to us about releasing emotion through our bodies. Oh, amazing. And I'll link to that in the show notes too. Um, and so I've been practicing cause I met Jude eons ago on my first podcast. So I met her probably eight years ago or something. And I've practiced what she's taught about that. And this year I had a situation where I'm down talking to, um, a medical expert is actually an endodontist, no, I'm sorry. It was at the periodontist office. Right. And it's like, Nope, your body's eating this tooth. We're going to have to extract it, do a bone graft, whatever. And for some reason, I don't know why at a core level that just freaked me out. And that's what happened, right? Is I'm sitting in this dental chair and my body just wanted to shake and shiver. And I just, I just looked at the staff and I went, they didn't need to work on me at that moment. It was a consultation. So I said, bear with me for a second. You can keep talking to me, but my body wants to shake. So that's what I'm going to do. And I got a couple funny looks, but I did that. I just let my body, it just shivered a little bit for a few minutes and then it was gone. And I felt great. Whereas as you said, culturally, we're told tamp down on that. You don't want to do that. What? Well, why not? And there's a reason the animals do those things because it moves that energy out of our bodies. When we tamp it down and squash it, we stick it someplace and we're going to have to deal with it eventually. So exactly. And bravo to you for doing that. Right. Because it's like the more of us who do that, but the more (laughs) of us who do it will normalize it and give permission for other people. And that's what mighty parenting is about is normalizing all of this, which is why I share my crazy stories. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing, Sarah. That was really great. And I know, you know, we were talking about some of what um, IB Me has and this summer they have their retreats going on. So I want to remind parents that, you know, they are inviting all teens age 15 to 19 to attend the in-person teen mindfulness retreats this summer. And what I especially love at IBME is everybody's welcome, regardless of financial situation. So do not go, oh, we can't afford to do that. They operate on a sliding scale based on income, and they will work with every family to make sure that their scholarship need is met. So no one is turned away for lack of funds. So make sure that you pop over to ibme.com slash mighty parenting and check out the retreat schedule, check out what else is going on because they have more than just the summer retreats too. So look at all of that. And Sarah, thank you again so much for joining me here. Another great conversation with you. Thank you so much, Sandy. It was so great to be with you. And mighty parents, thank you for being here. Remember, we know this is hard sometimes, and sometimes it's not as hard as we think. It's just different. So you're here, you're listening, give it a shot. You got this. You already are a mighty parent, and I will see you next week. Mighty Parents, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Mighty Parenting Podcast. If you're ready for more, visit MightyParenting.com where you can get your free email series, How to Talk to Your Teen, with tips for communicating with your teen in a way that builds connection and communication.
And of course, remember to share the podcast with another parent to support them on their parenting journey.